Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Ahead on Seasoned, we're celebrating the holiday with an icon in the food world in Ireland and here in the States. We kick off the show with Chef Darina Allen. Her love for Irish food will make you want to hop on the next plane to Ireland. Or at least bake a loaf of her Irish soda bread. We have the recipe coming up. Later in the show, you'll get a lesson on Guinness history from a Guinness brewery ambassador. And we talk with a home baker from Norwalk about her long-standing St. Patty's Day tradition. But first, we consider ourselves especially lucky to share our conversation with a woman whose approach to cooking is also steeped in tradition. Darina Allen runs the world-renowned Ballywaloo Cookery School in Ireland. She's a passionate ambassador of Irish food and the slow food movement. She's also the author of many best-selling and award-winning cookbooks, and a reissue of her book, Forgotten Skills of Cooking, has just been published. It's a classic in Ireland and here in the United States. Darina Allen, welcome to Seasoned. Well, thank you. What a joy to be able to team up across the world like this. Lovely to meet you all. <laughs> Lovely to meet you too. Darina, we're curious, where are you joining us from? Uh, I'm joining you from the south coast of Ireland, uh, east of Cork City, uh, in a place called Ballymaloo. Uh, we're right in the middle of a farm and we're very close to the sea. We have a little fishing village of Ballycotton uh, very close to us here. Wow, Ballymaloo, not to be confused with Ballyhoo. Irish food ambassador has become part of your, your CV, a part of your culinary identity. Does Irish food really need an ambassador? <laughs> Up to you know a decade ago, at least, I think you guys over there thought we lived on corned beef and cabbage <laughs> uh, and so on. But my goodness, uh, and people used to obviously come to Ireland, many, many uh, tourists come to Ireland. They had heard about the friendly people and the wonderful landscape and all of that, and they thought they'd just endure the food. But actually now you can literally go from one end of the country to the other and get delicious food in everything from pubs and uh, B&Bs and hotels and restaurants. And people are traveling so much more. They've become so much more adventurous. And at long last, we've woken up to the fact that we have some of the very best, we can produce some of the very best ingredients in the entire world. And I'm, I'm not just looking at this with rose-tinted glasses because I live in Ireland. That is actually the case because we have rich, fertile soil and we have clean waters and we can produce such wonderful produce and all good food, as you well know, starts with the ingredients. So, And we can grow grass like nowhere else in the world. So basically, our many of our best foods, our beef and our lamb and our dairy products come from the, the grass. And you can get many of our dairy products over there in America, can't you? Yeah, our butter and all of that. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, honestly, Darina, as a chef, I've watched Tons of videos of yours, so it's a definitely an honor to have a chance to chat with you here. Sorry, I have to fangirl out a little bit. I apologize, friends. But <laughs> so, but when Americans think of Irish food, corned beef and cabbage like is immediately what jumps to your mind, like a Guinness stew. But if you were to make a meal representing your Irish food, what would it be? Well, look, Family um, Cooking School is in the middle of 100-acre organic farm, so we cook absolutely with the seasons. And it uh, just depends on what happens to be in season at this time. So at the moment, we've got 
the wild garlic, what you call ramps, has just come into season. So a group of students have just gone into the kitchens there to make a delicious, simple potato soup because, you know, our potatoes are really good. And then they'll make a wild garlic pesto to drizzle over the top of that. Also, we it depends on the season, but we have wonderful prawns at the moment or oysters. Yeah. Oysters are still in season because there's an R in the month. Um, native Irish oysters. Wouldn't we like those with a little champagne sauce or something? Would you like that? Yes, please. That would be yeah. good. <laughs> good. And then lovely fat prawns would be lovely or what you call langoustine as well. And then our lamb. Oh, gosh, it's, I'm going all over the place. You'll be too full by the time I get to the end of the thing. But we have wonderful lamb as well, mountain lamb. The lamb from different parts of Ireland tastes different. I know a lot of Americans don't like lamb, but you haven't tasted the sweet, juicy Irish lamb. And the first of the little fresh mint mm. uh, is just coming up now. It got a touch of frost the other night, but it's just coming up. So we'd make, we'd maybe slow roast a shoulder of that lamb and then until it's almost falling off the bones and then serve that with maybe a, a simple little traditional mint sauce or else uh-huh. it could be a fresh mint chutney made with the fresh mint leaves. That's delicious too. Lots of lovely roasty potatoes. And we have, it's a funny time for vegetables at the moment, but we have the end of our Brussels sprout, our Brussels sprout tops, you know, the heads We've been cooking those. And then a lot of the greens, the kale and everything, are beginning to sprout. So those kale sprouts and things, delicious. That would be so good with it. And then what are we going to have for pudding? Rhubarb. The first of the rhubarb is coming in, into season. And so we're going to have a rhubarb pie. Oh my God. Definitely. A delicious, juicy rhubarb pie. And we serve that with softly whipped Jersey cream. And we'll sprinkle some soft dark brown sugar over it. How about that? You're coming to supper. Oh, my God. Check, please. I'm in. Darina, I keep looking out at my bleak desk waiting for these dishes to magically pop up out of thin air as you rattle them off. It sounds delicious, and it's a long way from my preconceived notion of whatever I thought Irish food was, Irish soda bread, which is a shame because my children are half Irish, descendants of County Cork. What did you eat when you were growing up, and who were some of the people or places or things that influenced you in the food world? Well, you know, the funny thing, I was brought up in a little tiny village in the Midlands of Ireland and the eldest of nine children. And there was always cooking going on in our house because, you know, when you'd finish one meal, it was time to start another. And mommy loved to cook. Every single day she made soda bread that we had a naga in the kitchen. It's a sort of stove that a lot of people have. And, you know, we'd come home from school and she'd be taking out a loaf of uh, soda bread or some scones out of the oven and we'd have them warm with the raspberry jam. And I'm not making this up. This is like totally as it was. And we also had our own hens and the scraps from her cooking went to the hens and came back as lovely eggs. And then we also had a vegetable garden, fruit garden and so on. So it was simple delicious food and uh, we had our own house cow Kerry cow you know we'd have had our own milk so you know that was my norm as a child it was just the way things were now people would kill for that kind of situation of course uh, we often used to sit down to a plate of food where virtually everything on the plate came from the farm and gardens and from the local area how fortunate were we but that was my not no fancy food then I came to work at Ballymaloo House when I left hotel school and of course I learned lots of fancier sort of French dishes gorgeous simple food for example we might have had a little bit of a little fresh trout from the river cooked in butter and we just say that was fried rainbow trout or something maybe with a little thing and but when I came to Ballymaloo I discovered that was a la meunière. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, Myrtle would have put a lovely little hollandaise sauce or something with it. So I learned all these uh, delicious extra things. And I mean, I was so fortunate that my path crossed in life with the woman who became my mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen, who started Valley Malou. I mean, I know not everybody says that about their mother-in-law, but mm-hmm. my God, she was such an inspiration to me and such a support right through the years. You know, she passed away a couple of years ago, but what a legacy she left. And of course, when she started Ballymaloo House opened their own big country house uh, as a restaurant in 19, what was that, 1964 or 65. It was the first country house hotel or what you would call inn in the British Isles. She had no training, uh, no no formal training. So she just wrote the menu every day, depending on, you know, what fish came in from the boats in Ballycotton, what was lovely and fresh in the garden and so on. And this is at a time, remember, when chefs, when they opened the restaurant, uh, they wrote the menu was the same 10 years later. So the proper chefs with big high hats, you know, they thought this was incredibly amateurish. But that's the way Myrtle cooked. She cooked this in the same way she would have cooked for her family and for her friends. And of course, within two years, she had the top rating in the food guides in the British Isles. Anyway, there you are. That's my, it was my mother-in-law, Myrtle. And then I just started the school in 1980, married your eldest son. Oh yeah, that's how it's done, you see. You become a, um, a member of the family by the simple expedient of marrying the boss. Okay. We love we love a good bout of nepotism. It's fine. <laughs> so anyway, started the school here in 1983, and I just literally built on what Myrtle taught me, and indeed what I'd learned from my own mother. They were such inspiration, and that passed that on to students. And then all these different sort of uh, kind of terms came, like farm to fork and zero waste. All the there are now terms and cooking from scratch. These are all now hot terms of things that kind of we were doing anyway. It wasn't a conversion on the road to Damascus. It was just, it's just the way we are, really. That's it. Just the way we are. It's just proper cooking. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you were inspired to write your book, Forgotten Skills of Cooking, in part because some of the students coming into the cookery school lacked some of the basic skills. Yeah. Uh, the stuff that you learned as a nine-year-old when you would cook with your mom. Can you share the butter incident you describe in the book with us? Well, you know, I was really like, I'm 73 years of age now, nearly 74. And I was very lucky to catch the end of an era here in Ireland. So when I was a child during school holidays, I'd be, I was sent to my relatives up in County Tipperary who lived in the middle of the, of the bogs up there uh, to get some lovely clean bog air. My great aunt uh, still cooked over the open fire. They had a very big farm, a 750 acre farm. My great uncle was very traditional and he loved the food. Hey, how about that? Cooked over fire. <laughs> As Myrtle used to say, if you live long enough, they come back to you in the end. But anyway, <laughs> I learned how to cook soda bread in, in a pot oven over the open fire. And of course, she made butter every day uh, from mm-hmm. the milk of their herd of cows. And so I would help her to make the butter and to make the little butter pats and all of that. So fast forward to the cooking school. So I suddenly see this girl looking a bit flustered, dashing across the kitchen uh, with a bowl in her hand. I said to her, what's in the bowl? And she said, oh, I was whipping cream and that's gone all funny. And I looked into the bowl and, of course, she'd overwhipped the cream. It can happen to any of us. She was just about to throw it out. Now, am I a failure or what? This is five weeks into a 12-week course. And this girl uh, on a professional course and knew, I think, that butter was made from cream, but had no she- idea how it got from cream to butter. So I said, hang on a minute. And I put it back on the mixer. I whisked it up for another few minutes and then the butter was separated from the buttermilk. And by that stage, half of the kitchen where the other students were watching, I thought, this is ridiculous. 
I must pass on these skills that yeah. I was lucky enough to catch the end of that era. I must pass on these skills to the students, even if they don't ever intend to make butter. And my God, how cool is it to make your own butter now? It's fun. But if you know, if you have a whipped cream rather than throwing it out, just make some butter and then you can use the buttermilk to make some soda bread. So out of that, I just, so I then started, I began to think of all the other skills that people had lost or, you know, decided weren't worth having. And so I wrote the Forgotten Skills book. It took me three years to write that. It could be, there could be much more in it than there is. And uh, basically it went on to win a, um, oh God, now, oh, I can't even remember the name of the award, but anyway, it's like the Oscars, the Food Awards. It's not terrible. Uh, And uh, it has been in print ever since. And during COVID, the sales went crazy. People were desperate to relearn or to learn how to right, cook. Right. And then it ran out of print, of course. So now there's just been a, a new printing again. But it's been, it's many people's uh, favorite book, actually. And Dorino, to that point, what you mentioned about, you know, Forgotten Skills was originally published in, in 2009, republished in 2022. And to your point, I think the pandemic I don't think, I know it forced us all inside. And there are some of us who became, we were like, okay, let's start taking some risks in the kitchen. Let's bake bread. Let's bake, make butter. And so do you think that there are some forgotten skills that have been resuscitated? Oh, unquestionably. Um, it's very interesting. When I started the school in the beginning, we always got our chickens, lovely free range organic chickens in with all the insides in, you know, with the entrails in. And this, we show the students then how to eviscerate them with that. And then I remember, so about four or five years into the course, suddenly it's actually an American student kind of almost led a strike one day when we had to put a, a chicken with all the insides in, you can imagine, uh, down in front of them. And uh, I, I said, you can't possibly expect me to clean out a chicken. I said, well, it's not a question of expecting you. It's a question of actually teaching you the skill. I mean, it's the same with any bird. And basically, if you get a present of a pheasant or a wild duck or something, you can't very well say to somebody, look, pluck it for me or whatever. Anyway, I decided, okay, much easier. We just get the chickens in already eviscerated uh, with the giblets, which we always use, of course, for broth and for making chicken liver pate, all the rest of it. Uh, The giblets, by the way, are the neck, the gizzard, the heart of the liver. Yes, the liver. And they all, you know, add wonderful flavor. So fast forward another bit then. So in the last, I suppose, decade again, then the students started to ask again. They want to learn how to pluck a, a chicken or a pheasant or a skin a rabbit or whatever. And it was like super cool for both the boys and the girls to do have these skills again. You know, because I think in a way it might have been, you know, the nose to tail eating you know mm-hmm. uh, that got mm-hmm. people it made it sort of very cool to be able to do everything yourself and also to honor the bird or the animal's life by actually celebrating every single bit on the plate but anyway it's come full circle again that now the students we show them how to do it on every single course and we actually have an electric plucker as well now for the game but <laughs> yeah and they make they also the students also make uh, butchery charcuterie uh, they we have a fermentation shed they also bread shed little micro dairy where they make butter cheese and yogurt and of course kefir and all of that so they love i mean it's really the 12 week course is really a full on very intensive cooking course for people who want to earn their, get the skills to earn their living from the cooking but they just love Apart from the cooking, they love to learn all of these extra things. 
you know, one of my favorite classes might have saw back when I was in culinary school eons ago was working and just, just butchering and, and cutting yeah. meats up and doing exactly what Doreen's talking about. Yes, well, they love that as well and homemade sausages and so on. Yeah. Absolutely. So when we think about forgotten skills, it kind of all comes down to passing down knowledge, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. And, you know, I feel so fortunate uh, that in a way I teach cooking because, you know, I could be teaching, I don't know, algebra or geometry or they're all very no. interesting things and all of that uh, but basically when you teach somebody how to make a loaf of bread or yeah. to make a little simple super stew it's like giving them a gift for life uh, you know they, it's something that will touch their lives and that they can pass on to other people and, and share the joy make a little pot of jam and just take the mystery out of these very simple things and now uh, just more recently even i've done an, written another book called how to cook 100 recipes that everyone should know. For people who think they can't cook, I want to take, tell them, well, of course you can. You just need a few little techniques and hey, presto, you can do lots of riffs on it and so on. So that's it. That's what I do. But how lucky am I to be teaching cooking? Because the, the look of joy on somebody's face when they take their first loaf of bread out of the oven. Because they created something. You know, they're absolutely thrilled. Yeah, absolutely thrilled. I have to say, just listening to the joy in your voice, this is a calling. This is not a profession. I think this is something you were born to do, 1,000%. And so now is the moment we have to get circle back to that soda bread, yes. which for me, I, I try to make as often as I possibly can. But here in the U.S., around St. Patty's Day, you can't take two steps in one direction or another without <laughs> finding a loaf of Irish soda bread. But yours has a backstory because your mom used to have one ready for you when everyone came home from school, is that, yeah. is that right? There was always, you know, she baked, well, you see, you can, soda bread can be brown or it can be white. In other words, it can be made with wholemeal flour or wheaten flour, I'm not sure what you call, uh, whole wheat, I think you call it in America, and, and white, or it can be just white. Uh, but basically, mommy used to make brown, uh, brown loaves uh, every day and so on. And listen, it is so easy to make soda bread. Let me just run you through it really quickly. If you can get Irish flour, you need all purpose flour for a start. So if you can get Irish flour, all the better. So you just get a nice big white bowl, you put in a pound uh, or whatever that is in cups of, uh, all my recipes are in, in the cups and thing as well. So basically you put the plain, you put the flour or mixture of wholemeal and white flour into a bowl. You add in, say for a pound of that, you add, um, a, a teaspoon, a level teaspoon, if it's white, of bicarbonate soda, baking soda, a level teaspoon of salt, and you run your fingers through it then, so that you incorporate the salt and the bicarbonate soda well uh, into it, and then you want 14 fluid ounces of buttermilk. Now, the buttermilk, depending on our buttermilk, is quite thick, so it might be 14, 15 uh, fluid ounces, depending on the, the thickness of the buttermilk. You make a hole in the center. Oh, wait, now you turn on your oven first. Okay, turn the oven on uh, to 230 centigrade, 450 Fahrenheit first, have that preheated. Then you put, you pour, make a hole in the center, pour in this 14 fluid ounce of buttermilk, and then take your hand like it's a claw and stir in a full circular movement. Well done, Chef Plum, there I see you doing the movement. I've done your recipe. In a full circular movement from the center to the outside of the bowl. When you get to the outside of the bowl, the dough is made. And then you sprinkle some flour over your worktop, turn it out, tidy it up around the outside, flatten it down a little bit, keep it about an inch, an inch and a half high, and then cut a deep cross 
That's the traditional blessing. And then you prick it in the four corners to let the fairies out of the bread. That's very important. Because if you don't let the fairies out of the bread before they go into the oven, uh, the fairies will jinx your bread. <laughs> They're always up to mischief here in Ireland. And then you cook it for about 35, 40 minutes, or you can make it into little scones. Now, that's a plain white soda bread. Now, in America, I know that what you call soda bread normally has some sugar in it, maybe an egg, and maybe some uh, sultanas, something, and maybe caraway seeds. So what that's what we call... We call the one with the fruit in it spotted dog over here. And if it has caraway seeds in it, we call it emigrant's bread because it's the, the recipe that the Irish took with them to America and they jazzed it up a bit. Yeah. And Dorina, you could take the same recipe you just went through there, cut it into scones, even put a little cheese and chive on there and have a Absolutely. delicious cheddar scone, right? You can do so many things with it. You can flatten it out, but cut it into, you don't even... Actually, just cut it with a knife rather than doing it into rounds because you'll only have to re-roll again. And then you can brush it with a little egg wash or buttermilk and dip it in grated cheddar cheese or you could chop up chorizo into it. Uh, you can chop up wild garlic, as I said, uh, into it. And do you know what we also do? I mean, the Italians would be appalled at this. We take a rectangular tin and we slather it with olive oil and then we flatten out this white soda bread into a rectangle, put it into the tin, and then put a tomato sauce on top, uh, pepperoni, uh, you know, some cheese, and you can make a deep pan pizza. It's out of the oven in 15 minutes. For, you know, hungry lads, you can cut into big squares or into little tiny squares to go with a little drink or something uh, with a glass of wine. Delicious. That sounds amazing. Are you going to make that for St. Patrick's Day, or how do you celebrate St. Patrick's Day? I will. I can, we can. But, you know, in Ireland, mostly we don't have corned beef and cabbage for St. Patrick's Day. But bacon and cabbage and, say, cold cannon or champ and lovely parsley sauce, that's almost more of our, you know, traditional Irish uh, dish than corn. Corned beef and cabbage is more the, the food of the emigrants as well. I know you have it always, and it's very good. Actually, we're going to have it uh, for the students here on because we'll sh we make show them how to make corned beef from our own beef, actually, here on the farm. And we make the corned beef and then we give them corned beef and cabbage. And because uh, particularly our American students think we're terrible frauds if we don't do corned beef and cabbage. <laughs> 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 and lots of lovely parsley sauce and carrots and, and oh yeah, lovely. And cold cannon, one of our traditional Irish potato dishes uh, with its mashed potato um, with um, uh, lovely and fluffy uh, with either cooked kale or cabbage in it. And that's delicious too. Or else you, you can uh, do champ, which is uh, chopped up scallions uh, in it. And then you put a great big lump of, of uh, Kerrygold butter into the center. And every single forkful you dip in the melting butter. Mm. And songs have been sung and poems have been written about those dishes. Serena Allen, you have been such a pleasure to speak to. I am going to look for those fairies for the next time I make my Irish soda bread. Thank you. <laughs> Happy St. Patrick's Day. That was the one and only Darina Allen. She's an Irish chef and the founder of the Ballymaloo Cookery School in Ireland. We talk with her about her book, Forgotten Skills of Cooking, which was reissued this year. Find more information about how to visit the school, register for classes, or tour the gardens of Ballymaloo. Check out our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned. You'll find three recipes from Dorina's book, including that Irish soda bread we just talked about at ctpublic.org slash recipes. Later in the hour, we talk with a Norwalk resident about her St. Patrick's Day baking tradition. 
I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we geek out about the evolution of Guinness, including when the stout first came to America and the engineering behind that widget that makes that unmistakable sound when you crack open a can. It's a beautiful sound. It, it tells you that good things are on the way. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Season. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We are celebrating St. Patrick's Day by exploring the food of Ireland, of course. And the drink. No other brand is more closely associated with Irish drink than Guinness. Chef Plum spoke with our next guest about the world's most famous stout. Michael Reardon is a Guinness Brewery ambassador and a highly trained beer expert, which is now my new best friend. Michael, happy St. Patrick's Day and welcome to Seasoned. Happy St. Patrick's Day, Plum. How are you? I am happy now that I'm talking to you, and I can't wait to start drinking a couple of beers after a while. You're a certified Cicerone, which is something mm -hmm. I recently learned about, which is kind of like a beer sommelier, right? Yeah. So the certified Cicerone program, there's a series of standardized tests that you, you have to go through. Uh, there's actually two levels above certified Cicerone. There's advanced Cicerone, and then there's uh, master Cicerone. I think there's only 14 master Cicerones in the world. So I got my certified Cicerone over 10 years ago. Before I became a Guinness Brewery ambassador, I was actually in the hospitality industry. I have a bachelor's degree in fine arts. So when you have a bachelor's degree in fine arts, you, you move to New York City and you become a bartender. <laughs> I went to school for music theater. Couldn't agree with you more. There you go. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. Yes, sir. Um, so I spent some time in that world and in hospitality, and, and I really loved beer. I was reading a lot about beer. I was home brewing. And I decided to, to use that experience and pivoted into the beer world. Uh, I worked at a couple of brew pubs up here. Uh, eventually, I moved up to a, a larger regional brewery here in New England and um, put together some educational experiences and, and things like that. Then I went to a smaller Saison brewery, learned even more about brewing while I was there. And But uh, getting the job of Guinness Brewery Ambassador for me, you know, I, Irish American, grew up just north of Boston. That was like having the Red Sox call you up and asking if you want to pitch in the World Series. It was like, dream come true. you know, oh, getting to work for Guinness was, that was the dream. Everybody loves a pint of Guinness on St. Patrick's Day, or if you're like me, any day. But, you know, I don't think people really understand the rich history behind literally what is probably the most famous stout in the world. Yeah. You know, the Guinness that we call Guinness here in the United States. So if you go to a pub and you order a pint of Guinness, you're going to get Guinness draft. That beer, believe it or not, is fairly new. That beer was first brewed in 1959. It is the world's first nitrogenated beer. We brewed it to celebrate our bicentennial. Uh, a mathematician in our R&D department, Michael Ash, came up with the idea of infusing nitrogen into it to get that thick, dense cream and those smaller bubbles. Nitrogenated means it actually uses the nitrogen in the beer as opposed to a carbon dioxide, right? Yeah, so so all beer, because of the fermentation process, has a certain amount of CO2 in it. It's it's carbonated. And most modern beers now actually have additional CO2 added into it before packaging. Guinness, on the other hand, well, Guinness Draft, has nitrogen added into it before packaging. Uh, so it has very low volumes of CO2 in it. And nitrogen is hydrophobic. It doesn't want to be in the beer. So when we mm -hmm. pour it through our, our spout at higher PSIs than most beers would be poured at, we get that beautiful surge and settle that breakout of cream. But that's the newer beer, a newer beer in our portfolio because it was released in 1959. We've been around for 260 plus years. 
So Arthur Guinness first started the brewery at St. James's Gate in Dublin in 1759. Um, he signed a 9,000-year lease, <laughs> which is fantastic rent control. He got wow. water rights to that part of town. Yeah, that part of the city actually became the brewing district. You know, Dublin started off as a Viking fort, and it evolved into a city. So it was a walled city. So St. James's Gate was the, the part of that wall, the gate in that wall that where they allowed you know, merchants and traders into the city. So yeah, he signed a 9,000-year lease. At first, they were not brewing porters and stouts. They were actually brewing a more traditional amber or like a reddish ale uh, that would be traditional for that time in Ireland. Okay. It wasn't until the late 1700s that Arthur Guinness and his son, Arthur Guinness II, kind of observing what was going on over in London where they had these big industrialized porter breweries decided to throw their hats into the Porter ring and really by the early 1800s had fully shifted to being a Porter brewery and had already written the recipe. We, we call it West Indies Porter. That's what it was initially called in 1801, but that evolved into Guinness Foreign Extra Stout, which is a fantastic beer. So the Guinness Stout or the Guinness that we think of, even in a can with a little widget on the inside of it, mm -hmm. that is a relatively new product. Yeah, that beer was released in 1959. The can with the widget in it, we didn't get until the late 1980s. That was created to kind of give that in-the-pub experience at home as it, more it drinkers start to enjoy beer at home. It, it really yeah. doesn't. How, how does that little widget in the can work? I've always wondered. Like, how does that, what happens there when you open it up and you hear that, yeah. that, you know, that little, that little hissing sound? Right. It's a beautiful sound. It's, it tells you that good things are on the way. Yes, sir. <laughs> so uh, it's the little plastic ball that goes in the can before the beer actually goes into the can. So during packaging. So the ball goes in the can first, then the beer goes into the can under high pressure. And there's a pinhole in that ball. So a little bit of the beer uh, and a little bit of the nitrogen in the beer get inside that pinhole. Okay. Uh, when they seal the can, because of the atmospheric pressure inside the can, that, that beer has nowhere to go inside that little ping pong ball or the widget, as we call it. So it just sits there. But when you open the can, the pressure inside the can changes. And actually, a jet of that, that beer shoots out of the little pinhole. And what that does is it makes the ball spin around inside the can. So that whistle that you're hearing and that noise, that's the ball spinning around inside the can. What that does is it agitates the nitrogen in the beer. That causes it to break out of solution and rush to the top of your glass and create that thick, dense cream. So with the Guinness can, what you do is you, you open it. You give it like a two count, like a, a little beat for the widget to do what it has to do. And then you hold your glass at a 45 degree angle and you gently pour the beer into that glass and slowly straighten that glass up. If you have the right size glass, if you have a glass that's about 16 ounces and, and you pour it with some patience, you can get a pretty, pretty spot on pub pour and even get it just proud of the rim. Uh, if you're somewhat skilled at it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this is absolutely fascinating. I've never understood how that worked. And I got to imagine I'm not the only one. And we've always wondered what that little thing is in there. That's incredible. Oh, man. you see people on the internet cutting the can yeah. open and trying to discover what it is. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> October 16th. 1817 was a fantastic day in beer history. It's when the very first Guinness arrived in America. In South Carolina, which I didn't expect to be the place where it happened at, yeah. but thank you, Mr. Guinness, for that. We appreciate that. Yeah, so 1817, and that, that would have been the, the West Indies Porter. So that beer was brewed specifically for export. So a higher hop rate, a little bit higher in ABV, both natural antiseptic, so it can make a longer journey, a little bit more of a rich and robust taste. And of course, back then, the beer was stored in wooden barrels. So uh, we shipped eight hogsheads to Mr. John Heavey. And it's impossible for us to know what effect those wooden barrels had back then. But uh, obviously, there, there could have been some microflora and fauna in there, wild yeast, bacteria. 
that would have changed the flavor of the beer. Of course. Uh, but we did brew a few years back an interpretation of that beer called American Guinness 200th Anniversary Stout. But 1817 was a big year because there was a guy in the UK called Dan Wheeler who invented uh, the drum roaster in the same year. And the drum roaster gives brewers the ability to, to roast barley to fairly yeah. specific temperatures without burning it. Yeah, to toast them off. Up until then, most brewers and porters and stouts were using a really inefficient malt called blown brown malt. And you actually had to, to mature your porter for about three months for it to mellow out because this blown brown malt could be acrid or it could be overly sweet or overly starchy that was really inconsistent um so once dan wheeler invents that you really see stout kind of come into its own because now you have more control over the brewing process you can use a pale malt base which is far more efficient and then you can use roasted barley which is what we use we roast our own barley at saint james's gate in dublin we can use roasted barley to get those richer flavors of coffee and chocolate and roast and earthiness and things like that and that's where you really see stout kind of start to separate itself from porter. Originally, stout was just an adjective to describe porter. It was a stout beer. So you'd have porter X, double X, triple X. Your highest in, uh, ABV and heaviest porters were called stout porter. You talked a little bit about what St. James Gate was, but how is it now when you go there? Is it just like a more of a tourist destination spot? It's giant. <laughs> <laughs> No, that it's it's uh, our our brew house number four is um, one of the most high tech breweries on the planet. We have you know several production streams going through that brewery. All the Guinness that we get here in the United States, so all the traditional brands, and also some of the innovation beers like the Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee. Mm. All of that comes out of St. James's Gate in Dublin. So this is a giant production brewery. When you go to visit there, what you're visiting is the Guinness Storehouse. So that's the most modern version of our tour center. Uh, and it really is this museum quality experience. Each floor dedicated to a different aspect of Guinness. You go through and you learn about the ingredients. You learn about the brew process. There's an entire floor dedicated to Guinness advertising and marketing. So you learn about those classic campaigns with the toucan. You know, if, if uh, Guinness is good for you, think of what toucan do and things like that. Uh, that's amazing. I remember that. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was written in the, I believe, I want to say 1929, early 1930s. But back then, that little rhyme was was fire. So that's what launched the toucan, the John Gilroy Menagerie of Zoos. So that that ad campaign. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. I don't think I ever got it until now. Shows how smart I am. Yeah, there was, so there was a gen <laughs> gentleman named John Gilroy. Any of those classic Guinness adverts that you see with the zoo animals in them. So there's, there's a lion, there's a tortoise, there's a seal, there's a pelican, there's a bear, there's a kinkachu. Uh, any of those adverts, he illustrated that campaign. And the idea of the campaign was there was this kind of like uh, schlubbish zookeeper. And, and whenever he took a lunch break and tried to have a pint of Guinness, one of the animals would steal his Guinness. And he'd say, my goodness, my Guinness, you know, um, the, the, the zookeeper in the ad campaign is actually a self-portrait of John Gilroy, of the illustrator drawing himself into the ad campaign which is fantastic that's incredible but you can really really you know became an emblem of guinness because of of that little turn of phrase that little rhyme if, if guinness is good for you think of what two can do i love that that's fantastic michael what's a characteristic of a really great stout like, what are a few <laughs> things you can when you are happy like, this is a great stout i'm thinking of this yeah you know, for me, I obviously I'm the Guinness Brewing Ambassador, so I lean towards more of the traditional Irish dry stouts. There are different types of stouts, obviously. There's imperial stouts, there's milk stouts and things like that. But in general, I like my beers to be really super dry. So that lack of sweetness on the back end of the beer. Uh, and that's what the Irish dry stout does for you. 
the great thing about Guinness is the balance. And this and you'll find this balance in all of our beers, no matter how high the ABV is and something like for an extra stout, which is 7.5 or in Twerpen, which is 8% ABV. There's still balance there. They're never overly sweet or cloying. You, you look for balance between bitter and sweet. So notes of chocolate yeah. uh, and notes of, of roast and coffee. A little bit of a fruity ester on front makes Guinness Draft and Extra Stout really interesting as well. I think the magic for me with Guinness Draft that I, I can't think of many other stouts that achieve this magic is Guinness Draft is actually a really simple beer. I mean, there's four ingredients in it. There's hops, water, yeast, of course, and barley. That's it, huh? We, we, yeah, we use the pale malt base. And then we use unmalted roasted barley. And that's going to give the beer its color and some of those deeper, more complex flavor profiles. But in that simplicity, there's this magic of it's simple but complex at the same time. There is notes of coffee. There is notes of chocolate. There's this subtle fruity ester. Even though the beer is somewhat light, medium to light bodied, uh, because it's nitrogenated, it has this silky, creamy mouthfeel that gives you the feeling of this heavier, fuller beer. Uh, but it's not heavy at all. It's 4.2% alcohol by volume. It's it's fairly low in, in calories. And then even though you get all this complex flavor up front, it finishes super dry on the back end. The Irish call it Moorish. We call it drinkability because we're less poetic. <sighs> that quality of wanting to have more after a sip, of, of being able to go in for another sip. I think that's perfect. That's a perfect way to describe it right there. Yeah. And I, I think also a great stout like that is something that almost seems to, more than other beers would even do, it quenches your thirst. You can take a few good pulls and ah, you feel refreshed after it. I'm so happy to hear you say that because uh, one of the things that we hear all the time here in the United States is during like the spring and summer months is that, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't drink Guinness during the summer. It's too hot out. I need something that's more refreshing. And really, I mean, Guinness is not a seasonal beer. There's not really seasons over in Ireland the same way we have them here in, in New England. Yeah. You know, there's there's cold and wet and slightly colder and wet. Right. Uh, that's basically, those are basically <laughs> the seasons. Um, uh, so it's not a seasonal beer, but you'll hear people come in the United States come the fall. They'll say, oh, it's stout season. But yeah, Guinness is a refreshing beer. It's a sessionable, refreshing beer because of that dry finish all season long. And it's a great culinary beer. And it's funny because our heavier beers, like foreign extra stuff, which was brewed specifically for export and opened up a lot of foreign markets for us in the 1800s, that beers drank all over the world, even more so than Guinness Draft. That's our most popular variant in the Caribbean and in Jamaica and in Nigeria and in Cameroon. And that's a much more robust, heavy beer than Guinness Draft, and th that's being consumed in tropical locations, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. We were talked about how, you know, people look at a stout in general or a very dark beer like that, like a Guinness, for instance, but others as well, and they think of it as being, oh, it's a really high alcohol beer. Like we said before, you said it's 4.7 ABV, which is, you know, alcohol. Could you, Point two, even lower. Yeah. yeah, could you just define that for our listeners so they understand what that means? Yeah, so it's it's alcohol by volume. Your average craft beer is right around 6%. When you're talking about like double IPAs and, and imperial stouts, you're talking, you know, 7 8% or above that. You know, session beers are actually a, a fairly big trend in the um, craft beer industry in the United States right now. There's a lot of breweries that are doing solely session beers because I think as a, a beer culture, uh, us Americans are becoming a little bit more mature. And, and we want to stick around in the pub and we want to stick around in the tap room. We don't want that one and done experience anymore. Right. Uh, this is actually a great time to, we, we always, whenever we do an interview about Guinness, we always want to say drink responsibly, respect the beer, 
uh, must be 21 plus to consume our products, obviously. But yeah, it's a, it's a session beer. You know, it, it evolved in Dublin pubs and the pub culture there. It's about going out and, and spending time with friends and family, having a conversation over a pint. So enjoying, you know, one, two, three pints, uh, as long as you're doing it responsibly. Yeah, 4.2% alcohol by volume is well below the average. Okay, so... Uh, Michael, I got to ask you, St. Patrick's Day, we all want to drink a nice traditional beer, you know, with a traditional toast to the Irish. You know, what should we toast? How should we toast? Give us some direction here. Yeah, I think this year, all of our toast should be about being back together again. Yeah. When we're at the pub and we're enjoying a pint and you're going to raise a pint, make sure you keep it simple because nobody wants anyone to get up there and talk for 30 minutes. We're all about to have a good time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so make sure you keep it simple and talk from the heart. And of course, a perfect pint is essential. The Irish have contributed so much to the American experience, especially here here in the Northeast. And uh, I think 1847, because of the famine, I think over just in that year in 1847, I think 7,000 immigrants yeah. from Ireland uh, migrated over here to the, the Boston area. By 1885, there was well over uh, 100,000 Irish immigrants and, and their native-born children living in the Boston area, which is just a staggering number. Uh, so it's had a huge influence on our culture here in the Northeast. So it's great to raise a pint to the Irish culture. Hey, I love that. Absolutely. Michael, you have the best job in the world. It's St. Patrick's Day. We should all be tipping back a pint and celebrating being together. And uh, we can't thank you enough for taking some time with us today. We appreciate you. Yeah. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Be safe. And uh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. You're awesome, man. I'm going to have a Guinness right now. I think I might join you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> That was Michael Reardon. He's a beer expert and Guinness Brewery ambassador. Find him on Instagram at about underscore the underscore stout. About the stout. I'm Marisol Castro. No underscore. And I'm Chef Flum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to a home baker in Norwalk about her annual Irish soda bread tradition and why she keeps it going. St. Patty's Day is kind of an uplifting time and people are happy and I like to share that happiness. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Before we go, we just have to share one Norwalk woman's St. Patrick's Day tradition. Susan Hansen has been baking Irish soda bread for family and friends for more than 40 years. Last year, she baked 200 loaves of the Irish staple. Her sister Sharon visits for the week of St. Patrick's Day to help with the baking, and husband Steve makes all the deliveries. I zoomed with Susan last week. I thought maybe I might get her to share the recipe with all of us so we can start our own Irish soda bread tradition. Susan, thanks for joining us here on Seasoned. Thank you for inviting me. This annual baking event has been going on for 40 years now? Really, probably longer than that, but 40 years in this house, yeah. 40 years of anything is crazy, but 40 years of baking? I mean, that sounds like an eternity to a chef, not a baker. Well, when you're my age, 40 doesn't seem so long. (laughs) You made 200 loaves of Irish soda bread last year. Yes. Can you make that 201 this year? It'll be more, because what happens is when I first started making it, Uh, I was doing it for friends and neighbors. And as the years went on, of course, your friends increased and your neighbors increased. And then I took it into work. And then Steve and I went into real estate almost 20 years ago. 
And I said, oh, wouldn't this be a nice tradition to, you know, say hi to the past clients and let them know we're still around. So it's grown every St. Patty's Day. We give past clients and current clients and potential clients Irish soda breads also. So yes, it keeps growing. Talk about the actual tradition itself for me. Like, how did this start? How many did we start the first time? And for 40 years of doing this, growing that big? You know, I've been making it since I was probably in my 20s. But, you know, whatever apartment I was in or condo, I would, you know, give it to the neighbors. And because my mother made it for us and neighbors, too. It's really my mother's recipe. And the funny part is she's English. It's my father, who's the Irishman. But um, <laughs> I started doing it just as a goodwill gesture. And yeah. um, it brings happiness to me. You know, I St. Patty's Day is kind of a, an uplifting time and yes. people are happy. And I like to share that happiness. Obviously, soda bread, it, it's a pretty easy recipe. You know, flour, salt, a little bit of baking soda, buttermilk or some sort of milk. I mean, buttermilk obviously is preferable, but I've actually made it with whole milk as well. But, you know, it's still a commitment to make 200 loaves. So why is this whole tradition so important to keep it going? I personally think it's very important because it's, well, one, because it's it's, it's an Irish tradition and that's important too, you know, and it's sharing my love of the, the holiday and my family's love. So I like to give it back. That's basically why I do it. And I want people to love it as much as I do. And I supply the recipe every year just in case I don't do it one year. I want to make sure that they're covered. They can continue. All right. So the chef and me has two questions about this. One, can you share the recipe with our listeners? And two, when you make this, are you making one big batch and then you cut it in certain, you know, maybe each batch you get 10 loaves out of it? I wish I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Um, So how do you do it? So basically, I found giving out so many, I cut it into two. So I can get two six inch, eight inch loaves out of one recipe. So figures 100 loaves if I'm making 200, 100 big loaves. So no, I can do only get four cups. I have a regular KitchenAid mixer, you know, that's one big Pyrex bowl and I mix this in and whatever. So it's only can do one recipe at a time. So it takes quite a while. I can get in my oven because I have double ovens. I can figure I can do about, you know, it takes about 20 minutes between each one because once you mix everything together, then you've got to kind of shape it and mold it a little bit. It's kind of crumbly and you got to make sure it's all together. Right. And then I can fit about 18 loaves total max. The oven's going constantly for 18 loaves till I get it done. And it takes about an hour. Yeah. How many days are we doing this now? With help from my sister, it took about two full, two and two and a half days of cooking nonstop from nine in the, say nine in the morning till six at night. Wow. Okay. And just, can you share the actual recipe with us? I'd love to hear it. Let's walk through it really quick. Sure. You'd use uh, four cups of flour, a quarter cup of sugar, teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of baking powder, and then two tablespoons of caraway seeds. Mix that all together because that's your dry um, and then you cut in a quarter cup of butter, you know, break it up so it gets kind of crumbly in the flour mixture. And then eventually you're going to add two cups of raisins. And then in a separate bowl, you're going to mix together one and one third cups of buttermilk. Milk is not the same, but you have to have buttermilk and a teaspoon of baking soda. You mix it all quickly together. Once you put that soda in there, it sort of kind of gets effervescent or whatever the uh-huh. word is. 
and you pour that quickly into the flour mixture and that's where you mix it up and then you put it out on the cutting board or whatever you're making it on and you shape it and mold it and cut it into the two shapes and then you cut across the top because that's the cross of yeah you gotta bless it you know so and then you put it in the oven well, we just want to thank you for sharing your recipe with our listeners so they can start their own 40-year-plus baking tradition. <laughs> I don't think I could do that. That's quite a commitment. Well, uh, my daughter's doing it now. She's starting to, doing it down in Asheville, North Carolina. Does so. she? That's, yeah. that's, that's really cool. That's very cool. Now, is she happy about that, or does she feel obligated to do it? Well, she's not doing the numbers <laughs> that I'm doing. She's doing it just for neighbors, so she, she can handle that. <laughs> not yet. Let's get her started, though, right? Once she's yeah, at 40 exactly. years, she'll be doing that number. It's a fantastic tradition, and we appreciate you so much. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you. Thank you, and thanks for asking me. Of course. Enjoy. Have a happy St. Patty's Day. That was Susan Hansen of Norwalk. If you missed the details of that recipe... Don't worry, it's on our site. And don't forget, we have three recipes from Darina Allen's cookbook there as well. There's a steak and oyster pie, braised lamb shanks, and Darina's classic Irish soda bread, straight from Ireland. Go to ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by mischievous Irish fairies Robin Doyenaked and Katie Zalarski. Our interns are Sarah Gasparato and Michaela Simon. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can catch past episodes of Season on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink for holidays and every day. See you next week.